Alhamdulillahi wa kafa wa salamun ala ba'dihi alladhi nustafa amma ba'd Fa'udhu billahi min ash-shaytanir rajim Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Huwal awwalu wal akhiru wal zahiru wal batinu wa huwa bi kulli shay'in alim Sadaqallahu al-azim Subhanu rabbika rabbil azzati amma yasifun wa salamun al mursalin Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen Allahumma salli ala sayyidina muhammadin wa ala ali sayyidina muhammadin wa barik wa sallim Allahumma salli ala sayyidina muhammadin wa ala ali sayyidina muhammadin wa barik wa sallim Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala ali Sayyidina Muhammadin wa barik wa sallam. All praise belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for having guided us. We would not have been guided except that He guided us. And we send peace and blessings upon Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and upon his family and his progeny and his wives and his companions and all those that followed them in their ways. Jazakumullah <coughs> khair everyone for coming to the Mahab Foundation Sacred Knowledge class on the 99 names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. <coughs> Uh, so last week we left off um, with Al-Muqtadir, right? If anybody recalls, we had a discussion about Taqdir and whatnot. You left it out of the notes, I noticed. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good because people get confused, especially if you don't relay it correctly. <clears throat> um, anyway, so Imam Ghazali rahimullah, moves on to two names, which are Al-Awwal and Al-Akhir. And the next two names after that are Zahir and Batin. So these are four names that come together in the Quran. In Surah Hadid, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Huwal awwalu wal akhiru. He is the first and he is the last. Wal zahiru wal batinu. And he is the manifest and he is the hidden. Wahua bikulli shayin alim. And he is alim. He is all knowledgeable and omniscient of everything. So we will do the first two of these four together. Uh, and then the second two. So Imam Ghazali, rahimullah, as with other ulama who have done works on the 99 names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, bring al-awwal and akhir together. So this is the first and the last. Now Imam Ghazali, rahimullah, he says that if we think about uh, the first and the last, then what does it mean? The first is something, it can only be the first when it is in respect to something else. And similarly, it can only be, something can only be last when it is in regards of another thing. So some type of comparison has to be made. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cannot be compared. Uh, and so it's not entirely appropriate to say that something that is something, the same thing is the first and last to the same thing. Understand? When you have a first place, it's first in regards to everything else. And when you have a last place, it's, regards, it's last in regards to everything that was before it. And so... You can't say the same thing is first and last compared to everyone else because that's contradictory, right? So Imam Ghazali says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and the same is going to, the same is, is so, there's a similar understanding for Zahir and Batin as well. But he says that what Al-Awwal and Akhir mean is what they are pertaining to is two different things. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is first. He is first in regards to creation and existence that there was nothing that was in existence before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So a Bedouin once came to Rasulullah and asked him that where was Allah before creation? Before he created, where was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And Rasulullah said that Allah was there and nothing was with him. So hence, he is the first. And the, the Bedouin then asked, and where is he now? And the Prophet said that he is as he has always been. So there's... Another meaning that we understand, a subtle meaning that we uh, can take from this, 
is that, and this is, you know, in regards to when we discussed things like istiwa al-arsh, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on his throne and whatnot. If Rasulullah has said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, he was, he was and there was nothing else. And now after he has created, so there was a time when he had not created the throne and whatnot. So he wasn't sitting on it, as some people would say, which is incorrect. Uh, and now that he's created it, the Prophet still said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is as he always has been. That means that he's still not sitting on his throne, right? Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not have a body. Okay, so that's a, a side note that we can understand from this, this hadith. But <clears throat> the Prophet said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ha- as he has always been. So he was, first beca- he was first before any beginning. And this is even relative to say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is first, meaning the first, you know, before the first, because first and last can give some type of understanding of uh, time. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not bound by time. Because there was an instance, there was a time, for lack of better, you know, lack of a better word, that there was no time because Allah Subhanahu wa Taala created time. So He's the crea- He is the creator of time. He is not bound by it. But again, this is all as we mentioned before as well that this is relative to us, our perspective, how we see things. So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala was, and there was nothing that was with Him. Some of the ulama have said that we can understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being awwal, being first, in terms of Him being there when there was no beginning. There was nothing else. There was no beginning, meaning there was no time. There was nothing else that He had created. You can also say that He is the first to be recognized by the hearts. Uh, he was the first to make and create things, to start anything. He is first by virtue of His eternity. Right? He is first by virtue of His own right. So these are some of the ways that we can understand al-awwal. Now, so he's first in, in terms of there was no creation, there was nothing else in existence, and he was there. So like we've discussed the issue of there being matter, right? People want to say that everything erupted out of this matter. So where did matter come from? Matter came from? Well, they say it was always there. They say matter was awwal. But matter was not. <laughs> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is awwal. Okay? So he was there and nothing else was there. Yeah. That matter was there and there was nothing else? Well, like, that matter can be, like, created or destroyed and only, like, shifted. Or, like, it only changes into, like, different things. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created everything, right? And He said that, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created everything. He is the khaliqu kulli shay, right? He is the creator of everything. So that means that matter is something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created as well. Now, as far as, like, the Big Bang Theory... Uh, it's not necessarily, that theory in and of itself isn't necessarily wrong. If it is right, all it means is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made the way for it to happen. Right? So he, he, he created the matter and then he allowed it to burst and erupt and sh- he shaped everything as it is. It wasn't random. That's wrong to say that it was random. It wasn't necessarily, but it wasn't necessarily something that was created from another thing. Because Allah Ta'ala can create without the means of anything else. He doesn't need something to create and mold. Right? Um, whereas we need, like, when we create or invent, we need something there. Right? So, like, light. 
we make a the light bulb. We need the right instruments and we need to bring the right things together in order for the current to be there. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't need that. Right? So Allah alam, whether he brought matter out of nothing or whether he brought it out of something else first. You know, but the discussion is that people who don't believe in a supreme being, they will say that everything sort of, there was life. There was this mechanism and it had the ability to evolve, right? And everything evolved into whatever it evolved in and there was matter. So where did everything come from? Well, there was matter and matter burst and erupt. But then where did matter come from? Because see, they try to look at people and creationists, for lack of a better word also, but creationists, the reason I don't like the word creationist is because we get grouped with other religions who also uh, believe that everything was created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. However, there are some differences in, in how we believe, uh, what we believe about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But anyway, people who believe uh, that Allah ta'ala created, that there was a creator and that he created everything, the question they pose to us is that, well, where did God come from? That's their final question. Where did God come from? And we say, well, he always was. And they say, well, there, he had to have a beginning. Well, why is it that he has to have a beginning, but when you put all your reliance and trust on matter, that doesn't have to have a beginning, right? So it's, I guess, that's the thing. We kind of both hit the same, the same wall, right? So you can sit and believe that matter, which has no, uh, which has no intelligence, shaped everything, or you can believe that there was a supreme being created everything, you know? Um, <clears throat> so that's the problem, right? Matter was not first. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was first, right? Now, uh, so what does akhir mean? Akhir is the last. But as Imam Ghazali rahimullah says, <clears throat> that whatever is first is first with respect to something, and what is last is so with respect to something, and that they are opposites. So it is inconceivable that there be one thing which is first and last at once in a single respect and in relation to the same thing. So al-akhir here doesn't necessarily mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is also the last in the same way that He is the first. But you could say that there is a verse of Qur'an that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said that um, uh, He will put an end to everything. Right? Everything will perish. Right? The day of judgment comes, everything will perish except for the dominion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in that sense, he can be last. Yeah. So like, like I want to say like 10 years ago or something, I heard a teacher talk about how like before Yom Qiyama, even the angels are taken away. Like, is that real? Like, is that, I don't know. I just vaguely remember that. So is that... Do you remember something about that? Sorry? Even the angels are destroyed? Yeah. There is reference, yeah, that, that verse of Quran does entail everything because it says that everything will perish that day right yeah so everything will perish that day except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so yeah go ahead so, like I don't know if this is just this is literally just curiosity even heaven and hell like even, even like, quite, so quite possibly right they actually the ulama discuss that they say that one is the idea that maybe it is at that time that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates Jannah and Jahannam possibly right that's something that the ulama will uh, say now when you get into matters of time, technically, some of the ulama have said that technically, it's all happening at the same time. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not look at the world according to time. So we are linear. We see events following one another. So right now is not the time of Qiyamah. But according to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because it's all happening within His knowledge, it's all happening at the same time. You know what I mean? Which is like, it's not, I mean, 
it's hard for our mind to completely grasp it, you know. But yeah, so some of the ulama actually have said that uh, it, uh, everything will be destroyed, and then it is at that time that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will create paradise. So he'll put an end to everything, but what will remain is himself, and then he, and then he creates that. Perhaps it could mean that he will uh, destroy everything and then recreate that, those things. Allahu alam. Yeah. So there's like no end to the afterlife, right? Right. So like afterlife, we exist forever? Yeah. Yeah, so it's another verse of Qur'an that Allah Ta'ala said, uh, abiding therein as long as the heavens and the earth endure, except as long as your Lord pleases, right? So, <clears throat> um, that He destroys, basically all life comes to an end, uh, but the heavens and the earth will stay for as long as Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala endears, right? And as long as He pleases. So, there are different end times to each individual thing that He has created, Right? Um, but yeah, the the Jannah and Jahannam and the Akhirah is forever. It's eternal. There's no there's no end to that, right? The difference between that and Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala is that uh, those two creations, Jannah and Jahannam, and the abode of the Akhirah, is not uh, independent of itself, and it doesn't. It's not wajib. It's not necessary for it to exist. Whereas Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala's uh, existence is. Wajibul wujud, right? It is necessary for his existence to be there. So he cannot bring himself out of, out of existence. Whereas Jannah and Jahannam bring it out of existence, it doesn't change the universe, right? Everything, and so that's another meaning that uh, Al-Awwal means that uh, everything is dependent upon him, right? Because Awwal is that thing which exists without means of something else. Um, <clears throat> so he is... In summary, he is first to exist as he existed when nothing else existed. Okay? And he is the last to whom those endowed with knowledge try to ascend. So that's another thing Imam Ghazali has said. That he is, he is awwal in the sense that he is the first to exist as he existed when nothing else existed. And he is al-akhir because <clears throat> those who have knowledge, he is the last thing that they try to ascend towards. He is the goal of those of knowledge, of the people of knowledge. He is their endpoint to gain that marifa, to gain that gnosis of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. That is the goal. The goal is Allah. The goal is not Jannah and Jahannam. But if that's what drives you, it's fine to have that goal. <laughs> but the ultimate goal is the pleasure of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. And so, uh, regarding this, Imam Ghazali references the verse of Quran: "Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun." That to Him we belong. He is awwal, and to Him shall we return. So he is first in as far as existence, and he is the last in terms of we will return to him. All, everything will come back to him. And then some have said that it also means that he is the first to guide and the last to look after us. So that he is the first one that grants us guidance and the ability to go on the straight path. And he is the one that when everything else leaves us, he is still the one that nurtures us. So what, when we die and we are bones and dust, he's still sustaining us. Right? He's still sustaining our souls in that time when everything else has left us. Uh, then he goes on to Al-Zahir and Batin. So these come in the very same verse that we mentioned of Surah Hadid. So this is interesting um, what the ulama have had to say about this. So these are two things that are opposite to each other. Right? Zahir and Batin. Zahir is manifest and Batin is hidden. The manifest thing, the apparent thing, and the hidden thing. These are opposite. 
So how can something be manifest and hidden at the same time? Any ideas? Exactly, right? His signs are everywhere. So, something can be manifest from one thing and it can be hidden from another. Or one aspect of something can be manifest and apparent, but another aspect of something can be hidden, right? So they are, to be manifest, to be apparent, and to be hidden are attributes that are relative to different things. So what does Imam Ghazali say? He says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is hidden in terms of sensory perception, or through the resources of imagination. So, from what can we can perceive, can we perceive Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? No. So He's hidden from us. Can we imagine Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? No. So in that sense, He is hidden from us. But He is manifest by way of inference and reason. So logically, we can deduce that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is there. We can logically deduce certain things about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So in that sense, He is manifest and He is hidden at the same time. Now, <coughs> It gets interesting that they say that um, he is hidden in his manifestations by way of intensity. Okay, so <laughs> he's so number one, he, he is you can say that he is hidden in he is he is hidden in everything that he has created. Now this is not those of you who may have heard or will come to know about this concept of Wahdatul Wujud, um, which is not the topic of discussion, but this, you know, it's this concept of, uh, and some people have given different explanations of it, but this concept of, is he physically in everything? Of course he's not physically in everything, because that is, Allah Ta'ala is transcendent above all of those things, okay? But it means that um, the proof of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being in existence, it, what do we mean by, by this concept that he is hidden in his manifestations? So those things that he has made apparent to us, his existence is hidden in those things, meaning the proof of his existence is hidden in all those things. Okay? That's what we mean. So, uh, in all of his creation, for those who have the basira, who have the basara, they are the ones, those whose hearts are clean and can see, who can see from the light and the eyes of their heart, they will see the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in every aspect of their life. And you'll find people that, like, they'll be looking at something totally different uh, or they'll be looking at something totally uh, seemingly insignificant and they will draw such conclusions and, and realize the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in so many different creations, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the ant, right? You'll find, I mean, it's amazing when you, you look at the ants and the bees, for example. These are two creations of Allah that are so complex, it's amazing, you know, that there is proof of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's existence if you just study these two things. Right, these two, these two creations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, another example is that <clears throat> His light is so bright, the nur of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is so bright that it blocks itself. That when something, when something reaches its extreme limits, and there is no limits for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but when something reaches its extremes, it becomes its own, it becomes antithetical to itself. So His light is so bright that the it, it becomes a block for itself. What does that mean? It becomes so, his light becomes so manifest that it becomes hidden. So, <clears throat> to explain this, Imam Uzayi says that what is most evident is what is perceived by the senses. Right? What is most evident to us is that which our senses can perceive. 
And the most evident of these is what is what is perceived by the sense of light. And light, or sorry, by the sense of sight. Okay, so what do we say? That um, what is most evident is that which can be perceived by the senses. And what is most evident of these is what can be perceived by the sight, what we are able to see. And the most evident of sight is light. Okay, so then they, he goes into this discussion about light and colors. And he says that <clears throat> colors in and of themselves, um, colors in and of themselves, they exist without light. Okay, so like you have, right, blue and green and brown, right? They exist without light, meaning they, are not, they do not need light in order to exist. But we only know that because of the absence of light. He says, for if the sun, which is the source of light, if it was forever suspended in the sky and it never set, then we would not know what darkness was. And we would think that uh, colors are, are there because of the light. Right? But when the sun goes down, if the room goes completely dark, the colors of everything remains, whether we can see it or not. We can only perceive it because of the light or the lack of light. But we only, we can only, we only know what light is because we know the lack of light. Okay? So <clears throat> he says that the existence of light is known by the absence of it. And colors exist without light, but we only know that because the sun sets and the lights go out. So if the sun were to always remain and never set, we would not know that light exists, it is an existing thing added to colors. So you see how light is, light and the absence of light are so closely connected. We only know one because we know the other. So in this way, Imam Ghazali describes <clears throat> Allah Ta'ala being manifest and being hidden. Um, <clears throat> that the color is only the color is only visible because of the light, but because the light goes away, that's how we know that the color still remains without it, right? If the light didn't go away, we wouldn't know that the color is going to stay, right? It's kind of like um, not in the term sense of colors, but you know, if nobody's around to hear it and a tree falls, does it still make a sound, right? It's like it's kind of like that, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, of course, it still makes a sound. Right. <clears throat> um, so, so we know light because of the absence of light. And light is the most manifest of things. So it is manifest, things are visible and colors are there um, d uh, because of the, or, yeah, the colors are noticed because of the existence of light and the absence of light itself. So light and sun is the most manifest thing, right? So you understand how it can be. You can have two opposing qualities at the same time. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is even more, you know, uh, perfect than the examples that we can give of creation. Now there's a <clears throat> another meaning that we can take from Zahir and Batan is that there's a hadith wherein Rasulullah said that there is no verse of the Qur'an except that it has an apparent meaning and it has a hidden meaning. Right? So what? The apparent, uh, the apparent meaning could be what's literally there in front of us, the words themselves. And then there is a deeper meaning as well to the different verses. Right? And that's, what, that's part of what makes the Qur'an so beautiful is that people for 1400 years have been studying it and still we're coming across things that 
uh, that, that we didn't notice before, right? There's so much into it. And so that's why, you know, part of it is people a lot, a lot of times ask about when somebody gets sick, for example, or has a need, then, you know, uh, should we recite from which part of the Qur'an and what should we recite and whatnot? <clears throat> and some people get really upset about the, the, you know, the concept and idea when somebody says, oh, recite these verses a certain number of times, right? They'll ask, oh, well, where's the hadith for that? There might not be a particular hadith for it, but the concept is proven, right? The Qur'an itself is a shifa for us. The Qur'an, the entire Qur'an is shifa for us. Some ulama found the, they found their need being fulfilled when they did a certain action, like reciting certain verses however many times and, you know, whatnot. So we can't limit, we can't limit ourselves to the literal meaning of hadith only. There are a hadith and there are verses that both have literal meanings and there are verses and a hadith that have uh, deeper meanings and hidden meanings, right? Uh, that are uh, metaphorical as well. Both exist. So we cannot say that everything in the Qur'an hadith is literal, nor can we say that everything in the Qur'an hadith is metaphorical. But there's both, right? And, and oftentimes, especially in today's, you know, we get, we get scared into trying to do what's, lit, what's only literally there. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There is good and bad forms. Bid'a generally, when it's used in hadith, generally it denotes something bad. Okay, but Imam uh, Nawawi, in his in his commentary of Sahih Muslim, goes into this uh, idea of uh, there's five different categories of bid'a. Okay, so there are there is bad innovation, and there is good innovation as well, and there's some innovation that's required, right? So innovation, certain innovations that are required are things that, like for the, for the defense of Islam, you know, um, and the Prophet himself, he said that he he mentioned and he used the word sunnah that he said what whoever starts a good sunnah then he will have the reward of everybody who follows it after that. Omar radiallahu when he established tarawih in congregation, because what the Prophet when he came to tarawih he 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 prayed it for approximately three days with everyone. And then they waited for him and he stayed in his house and he, he prayed after, uh, by himself after that. And he said that, you know, the reason is because he didn't want it to become uh, uh, obligatory upon the ummah because that would have been too difficult for them. So Umar in his time, now he comes to the masjid one day and he sees a whole bunch of people, he sees the different companions praying in separate groups, some individually, some in small groups, a whole bunch of groups. So he puts them all together and makes one congregation. Of Tarawih. When he walks in another time and he sees them all praying together, he actually said, what a fine bid'ah this is. He actually used the word bid'ah. So there are good bid'ah and there are bad bid'ah. Right? Um, yeah, does that answer your question? A little bit? Kind of like what, what, would, make it, what would make an action um, of worship considered a bad form of bid'ah when it's a good action? So it has to be, you have to have consistency with the Sharia, right? You have to have consistency with the Sharia. Um, the, there are certain things that the Prophet some did. <coughs> I'm blanking right now. <coughs> Give an example of a bad bid'ah. As long as it's not got to do with the source, uh, it doesn't have to do with Aqeedah, it doesn't have to do with Ibadah, for example. 
So that would be considered to be evil to God. For example, now you want to sit and make, you know, you want to sit and read like five surahs at one time. You know, so did the prophet do that? So we don't know whether he did it or not. But it's okay to read five surahs. But if you're saying now that these five surahs is a separate ibadah and it's something that's prescribed, then then that would be considered like. Yeah, the the problem with bid'ah is. <coughs> Uh, sometimes, sometimes there are things that are <coughs> are okay to do, but when you consider them, when you consider them necessary, then that becomes a bid'ah, right? So there's a lot of discussion and debate regarding can you make du'a in congregation after salah, right? There's been entire books written about this thing for centuries, right? And so you'll find many people after they finish salah in congregation, the imam will lift his hands and he'll make a du'a with the congregation, and everyone will say it, and they'll say, Amin. Now, do we have the Prophet doing this? To my knowledge, we don't find the Prophet we don't find it being narrated that he actually did this after Salah, right? He obviously made dua after Salah, but in congregation with everybody all at once, uh, I don't recall finding that, or coming across that. However, it's okay. Why? Because you're making dua. Excuse me. I actually did something. I was uh, preaching. Oh. No problem. No problem. Excuse me. No problem. No problem. No, there there it's that's part of it. Intentions is part of it. Um, and there are certain things that the ulama will call out and say like this is a bidah, right? So a simple matter, for example, uh, in discussions of wudu, we say that it's sunnah to wipe the, the nape, right? Wipe the back of your neck. But it's a bid'ah to wipe the front, right? There's no, there's no text for it. There's no, it's not something that typically should be done. And the books of fiqh actually state that it's a bid'ah to do so. But yeah, yeah, right. Generally, when bid'ah is used, generally it denotes something that is bad that we should refrain from. Right? So now, there's a lot of uh, details. So for example, the concept of du'a, some of the reasons that the ulama do it is because they say, well, maslaha, right? That uh, in order to teach the people and rectify the people, people don't know how to make du'a. So you're lifting your hands and you're making du'a and people are now learning how, it is, how you can make du'a. Yeah. So um, I don't know if this is actually a sunnah where like, it's supposed to be like if you make du'a for your parents, like your offspring is supposed to be there to hear that. Could that be like similar to it? Or is, is that even a sunnah, or is it... To make du'a, so to teach them? Yeah, is that something that... Yeah, no, that's, so that's something good to do, right? Um, so we find, like, the Prophet did certain things. So, for example, uh, saying, saying ameen at the end of Surah Fatiha in the Salah, right? Now, there are the, the Shafis who say it out loud, and there are the Hanafis who, and the Malikis who don't say it out loud. Uh, and the, reason, the, the, the reasons that the Hanafis and the Malikis give for not saying Amin out loud, despite there being a hadith that the Prophet did it, is they say that, well, he did it for three days in order to teach a man who was there for about three weeks. And once the man learned that you are supposed to say Amin after the Fatiha, the Prophet stopped doing it. So that's their, right? So what did he do? He did it to teach the people. And once they had learned, then he uh, would do it quietly, right? So definitely, that's, that's definitely something you should do. Now, when it comes to like du'a after salah, uh, yeah, it shouldn't sometimes it should be left out so that people know you don't have to do it. Now, some people have gone into the, the extreme of saying that, no, it, it has to be done. It's necessary. It's absolutely necessary. To the point that if you don't do it, they'll come and question you. How come you didn't make du'a after salah? 
out loud. You know? Yeah. So, like, when the Prophet was teaching um, people how to pray, did he, like, say, like, everything out loud that we're supposed to say quietly? Is that how people teach their kids? Um, no, not necessarily. There were certain parts of the salah that they actually, the companions witnessed him doing. There were certain things they asked him about. There were certain things that he sat them down and taught them. So like um, the, the At-Tahiyat, mm-hmm. right? It's narrated that he, he actually, he used to teach it. I think it's Abdullah bin Masood, right? He says that the Prophet you know, held my hand between his two hands and he taught it to me the way he teaches us Qur'an. Right, so there's certain things that he would actually teach them like that. Certain things they would witness from him. Certain things they would overhear him uh, doing. Um, so it varies, right? For teaching purposes, the line yeah. is a little bit more wider. Yeah. So a person can, you know, can do a lot more in order to teach. Yeah. So because it's for the sake of someone learning. So right. It's a little bit more wider. Especially with your kids and whatnot, right? I They'll see the doing it. The basic thing is don't rush and tell someone that what they're doing is bidah. Right, it's absolutely. It's nature that we got today. We just quickly rush and Right. Somebody, somebody once texted me uh, a year ago and they said, you know, I went to Juma today. He was in another state and they went, they went to Juma and they said that this person said that such and such thing is bidah. And people want an answer. Is this bidah? Is this not bidah? And this and that. Uh, I have a book and it's just one book. There's many more. It's like this thick. It's probably like 200, 300 pages. Uh, and it's called Mafumul Bidah, right? the understanding of bidah. <laughs> It's like 200, 300 pages, <laughs> you know. There's, uh, what's the one, Al-I'tisam, um, right, by Imam Shatubi. Uh, Imam Shatubi, is, he's, he's most famously known for his qira'ah, the seven different qira'ah that come through him, uh, or that he sort of, most chains go back through him. Um, but uh, what's it called? He has a book called Al-I'tisam. It's three volumes, right, and it's about this concept of bidah. So... Uh, we definitely shouldn't rush to saying that something is bidah, right? And oftentimes today, people just do it based on their own knowledge, right? So for example, one of, uh, one of the ulama from California, he wrote an article a few years ago about going to the hujjaj, the people of hajj, who've done hajj, and they come back and, go and going to them and asking them to make du'a for you. So there was an article that was written by somebody else who said, no, this is totally bidah, you can't do that. Where does this come from? And, you know, you can't just say something is sunnah when it's, you know, when you don't have knowledge of it. But what this individual is doing is saying that something that is a sunnah is not a sunnah. And that's also problematic. And so he cites two, uh, he cites two other books of hadith where this, uh, this hadith comes to go to the people and ask them to make dua of maghfirah, of forgiveness for you, because their dua is accepted. Right? And, and he says that the stronger chain is actually doesn't put a time limit. Because some people say that for like, what, 100 days or 90 days or something like that, the, their dua is accepted after they perform hajj. He says the stronger chain of transmission, the stronger narration, is no time limit. So once someone's done hajj, their dua is accepted. That's it. Right? And some tack on that you know, until they commit a major sin and so, you know, so on and so forth. But uh, we shouldn't rush to say something is bidah because it's not in, might not be in our knowledge, but it might be there. Right, like I was, there's an article by Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, um, who is a he's converted to Islam. He's uh, in the UK, and um, he was saying how we try and base things off of our knowledge of Hadith, and we try and base it off of us re- having read a translation of a Hadith. He said there's only been about ten books of Hadith that have been translated, and there's roughly over three hundred books of Hadith, right, and many of them spanning so many volumes. The uh, Musannaf ibn Abi Shayba is what you have it. It's like 32 volumes or something like that, 
<laughs> right? So there's so many hadith that come in there that have strong chains and strong narrations that are sahih, but we don't know about them because they weren't included in the six books that have been translated or the few other books. I mean, think about it. Ten out of like 300 have been translated, and we try and base our understanding off of that, right? This deen is very vast, and so we don't want to fall into this, what we call it the box of fear, right? Tagging along with that thought, like, so everything very fast, and the Prophet did a lot of things. And then, like, the Madhahib came, and they, they very, like, you know, very clear cut. They codified it, yeah. Yeah. So, and then I heard someone saying that it's very important to hold on to a Madhahib and not, you know, kind of worm around. Yeah. And I'm, like, thinking in my logic, if the Prophet came as a teacher, to mankind, and he did these things that the Madhahib are going for, why can't I take, like, what, and there's also a hadith, what's easier, like, do what's easy. So, like, why can't I take what is, you know, practical and halal? So the, 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 the Madhahib are, what are the Madhahib? The Madhahib are the interpretation of the Sunnah, right? Their interpretation to the Sunnah. Um, and a lot of it is, a lot of the differences are based on what is considered to be more virtuous, Right, um, and more rewarding. Uh, some of it is a matter of nasikh mansukh that the Prophet did this in the beginning, uh, and then by the end of his life he was doing something slightly different. Right, so there are certain things that were abrogated. Um, but the reason you don't want to, the reason you want to stick to one matab is because that actually, that actually makes things simpler. Right, it simplifies things because we don't have the knowledge to deduce which is stronger. Which opinion is stronger? We can, maybe one makes more sense to us, but what makes more sense to us is not necessarily what is the stronger opinion, right? And what we are prohibited from doing in the Qur'an is from following our desires. Now, the hadith about doing what's easy, it was not just do what's easy, but rather uh, Aisha said that when the Prophet was faced with two circumstances, then he would choose the easier of the path. However, that's not regarding fatawa. Because think about it from the Prophet's standpoint, he wasn't saying, well, this could be the answer or that could be the answer, so let's do the easy one. He knew the answer, right? And there were instances when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had not revealed the answer to him yet, and he chose one path which may have been easier, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rebuked him for it, right? Not because necessarily, so for example, after the Battle of Badr, right? What did he, the options that were posed was what? Ransom off the, those that were uh, captives, uh, or execute them, and there were a few different, few different uh, suggestions made. The Prophet some chose the easy one, which is to ransom them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rebuked him for that in that instance. Right? Uh, there's a verse of Qur'an that says, Jahidu fillahi haqqa jihadi, that strive, this doesn't mean jihad in terms of war and fighting, but it means strive here. Strive in the way of Allah, it's do right. So striving is not easy, it's the opposite of ease. Right? Um, and what's going to happen, the ulama have mentioned, Imam, I was just reading today, Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal rahimullah, he actually gave the easiest uh, stand. He had the easiest, uh, or the sorry, the what's the word? The least strict stance on somebody who always chooses the easiest path, and he said they are a fasiq. And a fasiq is a transgressor, a sinner, an open sinner. They're Some, halal, like, huh? From, from like me, my whatever. But like everyone is halal, so like. Right, but so each so each madhab each madhab is. What is, the, what is the view of the madhahib? That I am right with the possibility of being wrong, and you are wrong with the possibility of being right. 
right? And we all understand, and there's, there's consensus that uh, the fatawa of each madhab is correct because of the principles they follow. But when you start combining and mixing between madhahib, what's going to happen is you start, because what, what separates the madhahib is not the rulings that they conclude on, but what they, uh, the principles used to arrive at those rulings, right? Um, and so when you start mixing, then what happens? You start combining principles, right? So for example, uh, and then you'll do something that all the madhahib deem invalid. So for example, let's take salah, right? The Shafi madhab, they, when they travel, they say when you travel that you can combine your salah. You can make Dhuhr and Asr in one time. The Hanafis say that you, ha, uh, you do what's called Jama Suri, that you don't actually combine, but you, you, the way the Prophet combined was to pray one at the end of its time and the next, the other one, right at the beginning. So it looked like he was combining. Okay? So what many people do is they say, oh, okay, well, I'm going to combine because it's easier. Okay, that's fine. But then what do they say? Say, I'm going to combine for, I'm traveling for 12 days, so I am combining my prayer. The Shafi Madhab says you can combine, but they say you're only considered a traveler for three days. And the Hanafi Madhab says you can't combine, you shorten your salah, but you are a traveler for two weeks, 14 days. So what happens? People say, I'm going to combine for two weeks. By the account of both Madhahib, your salah is invalid. You know? And so that's what ends up happening. And then we open ourselves up to following our own desires. Uh, so we should... Follow something because uh, we should follow something because it's it's right. By the way, the ulama have have said it, that it's right right not to in order to follow our own desires, right? And that's why you know we don't want to go like you don't go fatwa shopping. Have those one or two ulama that you uh, take from because there's going to be differences of opinion even within the same madhab. There are differences of opinion, but we find that even the sahaba they used to defer to each other. So like Abdullah bin Masud radhiyallahu who was known as the fifth most knowledgeable companion of the Prophet after the Khulafa Rashidin, he would defer to Umar radiallahu And much of the Hanafi madhab comes off of Abdullah bin Masood. He would defer his opinion to, Abdul, uh, to Umar radiallahu uh, I think, who was it? Uh, there, were, there were six of the Sahaba that were known to give fatwa. Out of 120,000, there were six known to give fatwa on, on a regular basis. And of those six, three of them would defer to another three, right? So like Zaid bin Thabit, Umar radiallahu, Abdullah bin Masood, right? And, and a few others. So we find even the Sahaba didn't like just jump around like that, right? Um, if somebody reaches the level of ijtihad, which means like an understanding and an extreme mastery of all the different sciences, then for that individual, the ulama have said, you draw your own conclusions. You don't follow Amata because you've reached that level of ijtihad. But, you know, that's a, that's a high level, <laughs> you know. We have a, we have a Sheikh, Sheikh Salik coming uh, Christmas weekend. He's from Mauritania. Their habit, their style of study is to memorize everything that they read. Okay? Somebody literally said to me, he's memorized more books than me and you can carry. Okay? And he pertains to a mother, <laughs> Right? Imagine they memorized it. Last year he came, we actually asked him questions. And he didn't know the answer, he would start reciting the book right there in front of us. And then he would give us the answer because he arrived at it in the book. They typically turn, uh, they, they compose the books into poems. Okay. And they memorize it that way. That's what they do. You should hear how they memorize Quran. It's like, you know, they... they <laughs> 
I mean, they, so one of, our, one of our friends and teachers, he actually went there for a couple of weeks, and he said that uh, the way they memorize Qur'an is that they, uh, a kid will, what is it, the first day they have to recite their sabak, their lesson, 300 times. The, they have to recite 300 times before they move on. Uh, the next day, they take the next lesson, and they have to recite the new lesson 300 times, but yesterday's lesson, 150. And then the third day, they recite the new lesson 300, the previous day is 150, the first day is 75. Okay? And so by the time they've gone through the Qur'an once, they've gone through it, what, like 800 times or something. Okay? And then, before they are deemed a hafiz, they have to, and keep in mind, they have to, remember, they have to recite this thing while, they're, while it's still daylight, because they literally don't have light. They're just in the desert. They take, um, they take some like charcoal or something like that with a wooden stick and they have a tablet and they write, not an iPad, you know, like an actual tablet, right? Like a wooden plank. And they write the verses of Quran on it. And then they go and give it to the ustad and they recite what's there without making a mistake. If they make a mistake, they're, they're sent back. And then by the end of the day, they just wash it off. And then they drink the thing also, which is probably very unhygienic, but, you know, very unhealthy rather, but they're not, you know, they're like malnutrition anyway. Yeah, they made, uh, so our friend went there and they made, they, uh, they actually, he made fun of him because he went to, to do some lines of Aqidah from the Ustad and he, he's like, what's the line, what's the line? And his, another person was sitting there and they, they said the first couple of words and they couldn't get it. And he said, this little kid just looks at them and recites the whole, you know, few lines, and he's just looking at him like, he gave you the first two words. Like, what more do you need? <laughs> you know? Like, these are the people that are there in the world, you know? And they themselves say, like, they have not reached the level of ijtihad, you know? So it's a safety net to follow the madhab is a safety net. And I can give, we can give more examples of, like, how crazy your deen will get if you try to combine madhab. Dangers of self-interpretation is very dangerous. Yeah. Right, self-interpretation and what we deem to be easy is what, like, you know, you find extremist groups. If we say it's open to everyone's interpretation, this is a very Protestant mentality. This is what the Protestants did with the Catholics, right? The difference is the Catholics, they, they kept people, they did not give knowledge out to the people. They didn't want the people to be able to access the knowledge themselves. Whereas Islam says, no, come, every, everybody come and everybody learn, right? And if everybody can reach that level, that's great. It's just not practical or realistic that it's going to happen because you need people involved in different aspects of life. But <clears throat> you have extremist groups saying that, oh, if you, you can interpret for yourself. If that's correct, how can we then say that what they're doing is wrong, right? Then it's open, it's fair game to everyone. But the beauty of it is that we don't, these stipulations are not put down by the ulama now when there's extremist groups. It's been there since the beginning, right? And self-interpretation, I mean, you have like the khawarij, they literally, they killed Ali radiallahu because of their understanding of the deen. When Ibn Abbas, I mean, there was, at Ali radiallahu's time, right, the first three khulafa had died, there was no one more knowledgeable than him left in the world. And they told him, well, you're wrong. And you're so wrong that it's necessary for us to kill you. <laughs> you know? Extreme case, but you had a question. So, the, so there's differences of opinion within the madhahib, but the ulama of the madhab have 
concluded on what is the dominant opinion or what is the relied upon opinion. And that is the majority opinion. That's what we uh, make amal on. That's what we act on is the dominant opinion. Um, if I go to a sheikh and I say, you know, this is my situation. I'm not able to perform such and such a task in this way. Is, can I do something else in another way? They might give me a rukhsa. They might say, okay, there's a minor opinion. You can follow this. That then becomes a fatwa for me, not for everyone else. So you have to be given concession by the mufti to act on the minor opinion, right? And the, the minor opinions are there. The different opinions are there because it, it, it opens things up for us, right? That sometimes people are in situations where they're not able to do something in a certain way. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So someone, uh, I was talking to somebody and um, they were referring to like this idea of like seeking knowledge and stuff like that. Yeah. But in terms of like other religions and like other philosophies and to like kind of challenge yourself. But from what I from what I understand is like, even the, the prophet he said if like for example the jihad were to come like not to test your faith like to run away from it you know that's the picture I'm right. Yeah. And like. From what it seemed like, it was more like trying to put your like put your like faith up like, up to test against like other faiths and other like like philosophy like philosophy ideas, kind of like how we were talking the other day like the concept of like the person asking about like the um, what was it I forgot the um, thing I posted on Facebook. Takdir. Yeah, takdir. Yeah. And so I'm not sure is that like, I, and, I, and what I was saying to, to that person was that I don't think that that's like a good idea to like put your faith up to, like, to test, like, always, like, saying, like, oh, challenge yourself in terms of, um, so, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, like so what you want to do is you need to become firmly grounded in Islam. We need to become firmly grounded in our theology, in aqidah of the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, uh, and then go on from there. And that doesn't mean simply, like, I've given you guys tidbits here and there throughout the course of this class, uh, throughout the duration of this class. That's not enough. It's to, and even studying one book of Aqidah is not enough, but studying several books at, at very high levels, right? Um, once that is done, then there's a few individuals, and it's not for everyone, but there's a few individuals that can then go out and start learning more in depth about other things, right? But our problem as Muslims today is that we want to go and study all these things without being firmly grounded in Islam. That's the problem, right? So like Zaytuna College, right? First Islamic college in the country. Uh, in their student testimonials, somebody says that they say exactly that, that you know, there are wisdoms and things that you can take from people of different cultures. But what we do here is we learn our aqidah first. And now when we're posed with these comparative religions classes, these ideas from comparative religions classes or philosophy classes and whatnot, then we are, we're firm in our theology so it doesn't shake us. We know what lens to look at it through, right? And you can see, you know, like we've spoken about the Mu'tazila before, those who put logic above revelation. Part of their problem was that they were taking the philosophy of the, the Greeks and, you know, Aristotle and all these individuals, and they were not firmly rooted in their own aqidah. And so when they saw and when they read the writings of those old Greek philosophers, they became corrupt, right? Whereas the people of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, they were they were firm. Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, Imam Abu Hanifa, those that were the cornerstones of knowledge and, and pillars of Islam at that time, they were able to just brush everything away. 
you know, because they were firm in knowledge, right? So first we have to become firm in our own knowledge. And, you know, like we have our, our Essentials of Islam class. It's the Essentials of Islam. On Saturdays we have, it's the basics, right? It's the basics. It's not really a, it's, it's an intensive because of how much we have to cover in, in what little time. But it's not really, you know, you guys even, you guys have, you guys, everyone's heard of Bayina, right? Mm-hmm. Bayina even, they, they meet, it's a full-time program, right? Five days a week for a whole year, for like 10 months. Even they call that an intensive. Studying Arabic full-time for a whole year, they call it an intensive, you know? So we have to become firm in, in our knowledge and then we can go on, right? And study some of those other things as well. You know, and there there are. I mean, there, Sheikh Qasim took a class because he was uh, he was doing his masters at Seattle University. So he took a because he needed credits. He took like a divinity class in Catholicism or something like that. And like the professor knew that he's like, "What are you doing here? You needed credits." And you know, because it's oh. yeah, it's it's kind of only like you know seminary students type stuff. Sheikh Qasim actually said he goes there. Actually, there the Christian theology is actually quite firmly rooted when you get to those high levels. The problem is most of the Christians don't know. They don't reach that level, right? He's like, but the basic arguments that we give, like he goes, you, you know, a lot of people watch the Ahmed Didat videos and stuff like that. And we come and we pose these questions to Christians. He goes, that, that works for most of them. But the level that this individual who's teaching the class, the Catholicism divinity class was on, those arguments wouldn't hold, you know? And he's like, they would give me indirect dawah, and I would give them very direct dawah, and you know, <laughs> you know. Like firmly rooted in monotheism or in like in the Trinity stuff. What what? In the Catholic. In the Trinity, they were yeah, they're very firmly rooted in, in the Trinity, okay. right? Um, and other aspects of their their things. So yeah, we have to become once we have knowledge, then you can go out and and do things. But the problem is we don't. We don't even realize how much knowledge there is, you know? I mean, like, it's like we studied six years, seven years, eight years. We can see the mountain, but most people don't even know the mountain exists, you know? One person uh, said to my brother, actually, he said, you know, um, there's this one guy, this scholar, and he was trying to prove, uh, he, he was, we were, we were arguing with him about halal and haram food. He was, and you know, I was there, and there was another friend of mine who's an engineer that was there, and there was another friend of ours who's a doctor that was there, and a few other individuals, and he couldn't convince any of us. So if he couldn't convince us, then he must be wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's your basis for deducing, concluding on something being right or wrong, is if you could be convinced. You know, the Prophet Sallallahu like Abu Jahl and them were not convinced of the Prophet Sallallahu Does that mean that they were? Nuh al-Islam, right? All these individuals, like SubhanAllah, you know? So knowledge, like we have to, we have to learn. We just have to learn and keep learning. How should we respond to like, uh, like um, statements like that, where it seemed like the way that they pose it, and if you respond like, "Oh, I, like I, don't, I would not, like, I don't want to do that kind of thing," because like maybe I'm not rooted strongly enough to like to stop the, like, them from thinking like, "Oh, you're just like not open, or like you're not, oh, you're very conservative in, sen- in the sense of Islam." So how do you stop that kind of like? Um, it's always, you know, one of my teachers said that it's better to stay silent and be thought the fool than to open your mouth and prove it. <laughs> you know, if you don't have knowledge, uh, then the most I would say, the most I would say is, you know, like, that's not what the scholars and that's not what Islam says. And then leave it at that, you know. 
Because if you don't have knowledge, then you could engage in the discussion and you might lose the debate. doesn't mean you're wrong, but you lost the debate. However, that starts playing on your mind and then you get further away. Um, but if we don't have knowledge, better to just stay quiet about it. You know, the most we can say is, look, the ulama haven't said that and then leave it at that. You know, because what happens in argument and debate is you have two individuals that are both ignorant and they're arguing and debating based on their own logic and it doesn't really matter what, I mean, it's, it's, it's just you, your word against theirs. And when it's not based on knowledge, then... Exactly, right? You have to look at... You have to, when it comes to Islam and the Sharia, you have to look at the whole picture, right? So, for example, you have like one of these pictures. Okay, if you, if you go and you know, stare at like the corner of what that earn a British medical degree, okay? You go stare at the corner, uh, stare at the corner of that picture, what's going to happen? If that's all that was given to you, that this is, this is a, a part of a picture, you might have a million ideas as to what the whole picture is. But when you zoom out and look at the whole thing, then you, can, you have an idea, right? Whereas if you're just looking at one small aspect, uh, you're shooting in the dark, right? And what we end up doing is we take things that are not usuls, not principles, and making them a general principle, right? So for example, like doing, uh, doing what's easy, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Qur'an that He wishes ease for you. But where does He say that? One of the places He says that is the verse of wudu and tayammum, that if you don't have water, then you can do tayammum, and Allah ta'ala wishes ease for you. But what do people end up doing? Well, I don't feel like making wudu, and Allah ta'ala wishes ease for us, so I can do tayammum. You know? <laughs> a lot of people do that, you know what I mean? So it's really? so in terms of uh, in doing what's easy and the deen being easy for us, it's it's in it's in those regards. So like the past nations, they didn't have tayammum. When they got najasa on their clothes, they had to they had to cut that piece of the clothing off. They couldn't wash it. They had to pray inside their places of worship. Whereas Allah Taala has made the whole world a place of worship for us. So in 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 regards to other religions, Allah Taala has made a lot of eases for us. That doesn't mean there won't be difficulties, and um, you know, the Prophet some chose the easier of two methods when it came to things like walking or riding a conveyance. He would ride the conveyance, you know, things like that. So it's not a blanket, you know, but um, it's a, the madhahib and, and following ulama is a safety net for us. Um, that's why even within the madhahib, we should try and remain within uh, a couple of the scholars so that we don't, because they will have, even in the same madhahib, they'll have differences of opinion, you know. Yeah. I just and then I know that like when you're praying you can like hear at least I see my parents sometimes like their hands hanging and I think it's because of their method. And then I see other people doing this and so like I'm tired and I know like this is super but yeah, like, I just let my hands hang but I'm pretty okay that like if I'm doing one thing I should probably stick to it. Do your parents always pray with their hands down? Sometimes it's just So you you guys probably were like had some Maliki in like where are they from? Yeah, the Algerians are t- typically Maliki, right? So the Malikis pray with their hands down, right? Um, yeah, the important thing is to not act on our whims and desires. That's what, that's what it's a safety net against, right? Anyway, to, to wrap up, <coughs> we were saying that Zahir uh, and Batin, um, it could also apply, it could also mean that um, the one who knows what is apparent and what is hidden. And then uh, there's a dua that was made that glory be to the one who is hidden to the minds because of the intensity of his being evident and he's hidden from them by the perfection of his light. 
So he is manifest and apparent, but he has hidden himself to a degree because it would have been too much for us. And there's a verse of Quran that says, vision does not comprehend him while he comprehends all vision. Right? So this is in... What's after Ma'ida? A'raf? Yeah. Um, right. So that was the Zahir and Batin. So this was the... Do you guys have any questions about that? Enough questions today, I think. <laughs> Uh, you guys are in finals next week, right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so this is the last class of the quarter, and then we'll continue next quarter, inshallah. Um, we'll probably finish the book within like a f the first few weeks, the first like three or four sessions or so. Um, and uh, yeah, after that, uh, what I had intended on doing was Imam Nawawi's forty hadith. But by the time we by the time we finish, um, by the time we finish, I don't think there's gonna be enough time left for the end of the year before the end of the year. There'll be like 14, 13 classes before the end of the year. So we can do something else that's shorter that we can finish by the end of the year and then start fresh next year. So you guys just think about maybe what topic you might want to do or whatnot, and we can maybe um, choose from there. Yeah. I have a question off topic though. Yeah. Um, 